Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Antoine Fougère Ramsamouj. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. The war in Ukraine has reached its one-year anniversary, a grim milestone few people in February of 2022 thought would be possible. Over the last year, the world has remained stunned, shocked, and enthralled by the conflict and its developments. These include the inspiring resilience of the Ukrainian people, the surprising shortfalls of the Russian military, and the rallying of the international community in support of Ukraine. However, with a year come and gone, it is easy to forget the implications that the war continues to have on our lives. As such, this episode will serve as a retrospective of the war and a reminder of the brutal costs that Ukraine, Russia, and the world are still paying. Through a conversation with Janice Stein of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, our first segment serves as a retrospective of the war, how it began, its most important moments, and how it might continue from now. In our second segment, we discuss with Danny Nadal, also from the Monk School. This segment emphasizes the human cost of the war, an essential topic to take in the conflict's true consequences properly. A note. While no graphic descriptions are present, this episode will talk about the human violence and suffering that has happened due to this war. Please take care while listening. Our first guest on the show today is Professor Janice Stein. Janice Stein is the Beltsburg Professor of Conflict Management in the Department of Political Science and the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and a member of the Order of Canada and the Order of Ontario. She was the Massey Lecturer in 2001 and a Trudeau Fellow. She was awarded the Molson Prize by the Canada Council for an outstanding contribution by a social scientist to public debate and has received honorary doctorates of law from universities in Canada and abroad. She is also an honorary foreign member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a senior fellow of the Kissinger Center at SAIS at Johns Hopkins University. Her current research focuses on technology and public policy in the context of great power competition. Last year, she co-chaired the National Advisory Committee on Canada's Indo-Pacific Strategy for the Minister of Global Affairs. Hello, Professor Stein. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us on our retrospective on the war in Ukraine. The conflict in so many ways has been terrifying and heartbreaking. But most of all, I think the word to describe this conflict is shocking. It feels that almost every aspect of this conflict has a degree of shock uh, and surprise felt by Ukrainians, Russians, and members of the global community. And as such, I think a good question to start things off uh, for our listeners is, you know, how did we get here? How how and why did this conflict begin? I think you have to go back to the dissolution of the Soviet Union uh, in 1991, which to uh, many was liberating and exhilarating in Russia, but to many others was shocking, to use your words, and dispiriting. Uh, And Vladimir Putin, who was in the security services, certainly considers it, as he put it, the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century to see the Soviet Union break apart. When he became 
president, there was a period of still good relationships with the West, but as early as the Munich Security Conference of 2000, so this goes back a long time, um, in 2004, he expressed a view of the world in which um, Western imperialists, to make a longer story short, were bent on humiliating Russia and encircling it. And that is, I think that goes very deep with him. And when the color revolutions occurred uh, in 2007, 2008, uh, that for him was confirmation of the fact that Russia was besieged by Westerners. And this is not a new theme in Russian history. Uh, it, it recurs at different points um, in, in a very long history. And so I date the conflict back to then because once it becomes deeply embedded in Putin's view of the world, that the West is antagonistic to Russia, doesn't see it as a partner, doesn't right. recognize Russia as a great power, it's possible to connect the dots. Now, does that mean that it was inevitable, the war was inevitable? No, but the stage was set. Thank you for giving kind of the ideological background of this uh, of this conflict, particularly Putin's point of view. And, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, um, you know, this this episode airing on, you know, just after the one year anniversary of the invasion. Um, in hindsight, were there any signs that this immediate conflict was approaching? Um, yeah. If so, you know, what were they? There certainly were, and I think we all know that U.S. intelligence correctly predicted it. So this is, um, there's, that is hard to do, by the way, very hard to do, uh, but they were absolutely accurate. To make the story a little more complicated, in 2000, in the spring of 2021, a year before the invasion, um, Vladimir Putin mobilized about 100,000 Russian troops along its border with Ukraine. Um, and so you could read into that an intention to attack. Uh, that exercise was wound down and there was a summit meeting with Joe Biden in which the two presidents agreed to work together um, on security issues of common concern. Uh, the rhetoric escalated again in the fall and essentially the same set of demands comes back. Russia's security is at risk. And there was what you would say a maximalist set of security demands coming from Russia. Uh, NATO forces pull back from all the former territories of the Soviet Union. So Poland, Romania, mm -hmm. Hungary, uh, that gives no agency to those countries and no choice to those countries and frankly treats them all um, as part of the larger Russian empire. That was a non-starter. Um, troops began to thicken um, October, November, December. Um, the telling signs that war was imminent uh, came really in February when field hospitals and blood supplies were moved right up to the front lines. But to the mm -hmm. last minute, 
analysts disagreed about whether, even after the U.S. released their intelligence and shared it with Zelensky, who did not expect the war, by the way, with the German government, with the French government, they disbelieved the intelligence. And why? Because in their view, it was so overwhelmingly irrational on Putin's part to decide to go to war. So there were many, many signs, and ultimately it was deployment on the battlefield that plus the capacity to listen in uh, through signals intelligence that confirmed the U.S. estimate. So that, I think, is a good summary of the lead-up and the the rhetoric right before the war. Um, I kind of want to discuss the war's developments. Uh, now, this is not a, uh, a military history podcast, nor would I want it to be. But I think it's important to recognize, you know, what have been the most significant political, economic, or military developments? And more specifically, are those or are the most significant developments different, depending on if you're looking at this conflict through a Ukrainian perspective, a Russian perspective, or a Western perspective? I pose I, I without saying, of course, that they're different. Right? If you're looking at this war from Russia's perspective, it's going to look and feel very differently than if you're looking at it from Ukraine's perspective, because they are living through uh, the assault on their, on their basic infrastructure. Uh, and it's going to look very different if you're in NATO than if you're in the Middle East or in Asia. So let's talk for a moment about the economic consequences, which don't get enough attention. There has been a drastic rise in the price of imported wheat for poorer countries in Africa and the Middle East. And when you get that so up to 20%, and in wheat-eating countries, that is a catastrophic rise in the price of food. Egypt is probably the country that is most visible in terms of the inflation. Um, and it is always the people who are close to the margins who spend a larger share of their income on food and housing. And so for many Egyptians, uh, this will push millions and millions and millions of Egyptians below the poverty line. And that is true for many, many countries in Africa that are weak consuming. It also has had a tremendous impact because fertilizer, which is uh, a large export from Ukraine, is has been largely blocked by the Russians. And if the fertilizer didn't reach um, the farmers uh, in the late fall when they sow the crop for the spring, next year's crop will be compromised as well. So we are seeing really significant economic suffering among poor countries in the world as a result of this war. So where you are really matters. Uh, you can't say that about North Americans who have, who are first of all grain growing countries and have, yes, um, experienced inflationary price rises, but it is not the same as simply being able to, uh, you know, not to afford the price of basic food. Uh, the political consequences have been uh, also very, very large, primarily two. One, that NATO has been able, under U.S. leadership, um, 
to preserve a degree of unity that no one expected. It has also made clear how vital U.S. leadership is to NATO. Any notion of an autonomous European defense capacity, which President Macron likes to talk about, is just that, a wish, um, because U.S. leadership has proven absolutely uh, critical here. But again, look at the rest of the world. Where, where's India uh, in this? Where's Brazil? Where are major powers in, in Africa? Um, Africa, if anything, is sympathetic to Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, countries like India are being very careful not to take sides. Uh, yes, Japan, South Korea um, are strongly supportive of NATO, but the majority of the world's population if you think about it that way, have stood on the sidelines and refused uh, to declare themselves either um, for Ukraine or for Russia. They have tried to stay out of what they consider a European conflict. So the last question, the last part of your question was about the military um, consequences. Uh, we have seen an astounding performance by the Ukrainian army which is being watched and studied all around the world. This is a performance by a distributed army, which yeah. pushes decision-making down to the lowest possible levels. Ukrainians have proven themselves astonishingly agile, uh, innovative in adapting technology, you know, using uh, old Soviet equipment and layering on, on, on top of that. Uh, more advanced Western technology. And it's through that incredible agility um, and adaptability that the Russians have been able to, first of all, reclaim 40% of the yeah. territory that Russia occupied in the invasion. We are now in a stalemate, which is extraordinarily costly. Um, at least 100,000 dead and wounded on each side and Ukraine has a much smaller population base. And so this war, um, this next year will be defining in terms of the war. It is very difficult to say, contrary to what we hear, that the winner is determined yet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we're recording this episode, um, there's just been announced that, you know, Germany will be sending Leopard 2 tanks. The United States will be sending M1 Abrams tanks as well. So um, it, it will. For the benefit of the listeners, those Abrams tanks will not be on the field for months. It will take months. months. Um, that's optimistic. And the Leopard 2 tanks, which are much more mobile much lower maintenance, run on regular fuel, not jet fuel. So you can imagine the difficulties Ukraine will have in supplying those tanks with jet fuel. They will take months. And the numbers around 100, frankly, are still not what Ukraine has asked for in terms of being able to make a breakthrough against deeply, deeply entrenched Russian lines. Absolutely. I think... That brings us nicely with the the different economic, political, and military developments. I think that brings us uh, nicely to, you know, what have been the most important lessons for that the war has taught us uh, regarding 
authoritarianism, regarding democracy, the current world order. Um, how has the war, you know, changed our thinking uh, regarding, you know, what the what the future of this world can be? I am not um, persuaded by the Biden administration's division of the world into authoritarians and democracies. It frankly leaves out too many. <laughs> mm. um, and I don't think that running a dividing line, um, and especially if we talk about the liberal democratic world order, I don't think running a dividing line through the world is a helpful way to think about the world. Uh, so I would reframe your question. What lessons have uh, small vulnerable states like Ukraine who live next door to big powers learned? Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, that they're very sobering lessons because um, small countries that live next door to big powers have fewer degrees of freedom. We do that in this country. We live next door uh, to a very large power. And we as a, as a country understand that our economy and our economic health is dependent uh, on the openness of the U.S. border and the health of the U.S. economy. Uh, it's a fact of life. And mm -hmm. there are times in our history where we wished we could cut ourselves off from this continent and maybe put ourselves in the south of Europe where the weather is better than it is here, but that's not an option for us. We have to live next door um, to, to a large, powerful country that thinks very little about Canada, frankly. We're not on their radar screen, and that's an advantage some days. However this war ends, Ukraine will have to live next door to Russia forever. Mm -hmm. Um, Taiwan will have to live next door to China forever, as will other small Asian countries. And this is a cruel, not for us in Canada, the least cruel because of the nature of the U.S. government is so different from the other big powers. But there are cruel realities for small countries that live next to big powers, um, which constrain their options, frankly. Now, that's not a popular thing to say, but it's a fact. Right. Absolutely. Um, I think another important question to ask is, um, is a Ukrainian victory necessarily a victory for the West and for NATO and for Europe? Um, and also counter to that, um, is, is, are there reservations about, you know, a potential complete Russian collapse? Let's separate those two questions. Uh, a Ukrainian victory does not necessarily imply a Russian collapse. Clearly, a Ukrainian victory is a victory for NATO. Ukraine has received an extraordinary amount of military equipment from NATO. It has no capacity to supply itself. Its economy has been ruined, frankly. Its infrastructure has been ruined. And it will be the West that will be involved um, in reconstruction efforts after the war. Uh, so there's no other way to interpret this, uh, uh, to interpret a Ukrainian victory other than as a victory for NATO and the West, and as a defeat for Russia. Second question is different. Does a defeat 
for Russia necessarily imply the breakup of Russia. I know it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many scenarios um, that begin um, with the removal of Putin from power, his replacement by somebody who is further to the right than he is right now, his replacement by somebody uh, that comes from by, by the military who feel that um, the strategy has been poorly designed, that they have not been appropriately consulted, uh, that the president has run this war. That's a second possibility. In neither of those two eventualities would Russia necessarily break up. Mm. Um, should Russia break up, which I think is um, less of a, a likelihood, would that cause concern? Of course it would cause concern. Russia's a nuclear weapon state. Mm-hmm. It has deployed weapons in different parts of what is a very large country. And if we think back to 1991 when the Soviet Union broke up, and this is in many ways a tragic story, the West was overwhelmingly concerned about what it called loose nukes um, that could escape appropriate supervision. And one of the things um, the United States made a huge effort to do was to persuade Ukraine to return mm-hmm. to Russia uh, the nuclear weapons that were deployed on Ukrainian territory. And Ukraine did that in exchange for ironclad guarantees from Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States that its borders would be respected. Um, you really have to wonder if this war would have happened if Russia, if Ukraine had not returned those weapons. So I think that brings us nicely to my last question, which is, you know, looking past the current conflict, right. uh, irrespective of how it ends, irrespective of who wins, um, what will be the key considerations for the world regarding the advent of armed conflict, regarding, you know, NATO, uh, Europe, China, Taiwan, um, all of these aspects? So first of all, all conflict is local. Mm. That's why history matters so much. All conflict is local. Um, And Vladimir Putin brought very specific uh, interpretations of Russian history, uh, which don't apply elsewhere. I don't think there are direct implications of Russia's attack on Ukraine, for example, to the relationship between China and Taiwan. I think mm-hmm. people are making a mistake there. I think there is one um, more general comment that certainly for Europe and even more so for other parts of the world, those who argue that all out military conflict was over, that we were not only were we were in a post-industrial age, we were in a post-war age, have had the blinkers stripped off. Um, War remains very, very much a part of our contemporary reality, unfortunately, and and it has been throughout human history. And it will continue to be um, a part of what is possible between countries that, frankly, we would expect to be beyond, but they're not. They believed that war was impossible in Europe. They weren't right. 
Professor Stein, thank you so much for this. Uh, thank you for joining us. And thank you for doing Behind the Headlines. It's a great project. Once again, that was Janice Stein, who joined us for a discussion on the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Thank you for tuning in for Beyond the Headlines. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines, checking out our website, www.beyondtheheadlines.net, or by following us on Instagram at beyondtheheadlines. Thank you for joining us.